1,000 the better stories. Welcome to 1,000 Better Stories, the Scottish Communities Climate Action Network's podcast sharing stories of community-led climate action in Scotland to help us all imagine a better and fairer future beyond the new normal and transform what we think is possible. Hello, it's Kashka, one of the SCAN's story weavers. In today's episode, I invited Karen Ridgewell to talk about the approaches and lessons from the first year of the Scottish Climate Action Towns Project, delivered by Architecture and Design Scotland. You can find the links to the executive summary and to the full report in the show notes. The latter is very much worth having a look at for the list of resources which may be helpful in facilitating climate action conversations and planning in your own area. We recorded the interview at Karen's home, so you will hear some trains, planes and birds in the background. We started our conversation in her lovely garden, which is in the process of being rewilded and turned into a productive veggie patch. So my name is Karen Ridgewell. I am currently a Principal Design Officer at Architecture and Design Scotland. Architecture and Design Scotland are a non-departmental organisation of the Scottish Government. We are Scotland's design champions um, and I'm currently working on behalf of the Energy and Climate Change Directorate on um, a project called Climate Action Towns which has been running for the last year and a bit. And as all good climate conversations have it, we should probably start from knowing your personal climate journey. So if you could maybe tell me how how you got to what you do. I am an architect. I studied at the Glasgow School of Art and then moved to Brighton to do my postgraduate. And it was at that point that my world's uh, view uh, expanded ever so slightly or quite dramatically, depending on your your perspective. Um, So Brighton is a very different place than Glasgow it is full of lots of different people from all over the world it's very transient but it has an ethos of of fun but also consciousness of everyone's impact on on the environment so um, the staff that I had that during my postgraduate opened my mind to many things uh, including a study trip to go and see Ben Law's house um, which was on an episode of Grand Designs which was the first episode I was ever aware of where someone was building their house to be completely off-grid and as low impact as possible and I think at that point I really started to understand the impact that designers can have on the planet and on people uh, beyond the sort of ego-driven statements of of grandeur. Um, I think my point view about my role as a designer completely turned 180 degrees in in that that year at uni. Um, From there I came back to Scotland and did my uh, part three working with island communities that were being impacted by non-connectivity to mains gas and what that meant. Um, um, Reducing populations, small condensed and focused populations which meant that the schools had to um, combine and shrink to um, so the impact that designs could have on a community um, was quite significant during that project and then was made redundant during the recession um, and yeah uh, as everyone else you know we went from a practice of 120 down to 20 odd um, I came back from maternity leave and, and was made redundant so uh, lucky possibly one of my old senior members of staff had got a job with a national contractor and they needed someone to come and look after their brain rated projects which is the BRE's environmental assessment method um, so you know the EPC rating version of 
a washing machine for buildings. Um, and I had trained to be an assessor as an architect um, the previous few years. So I went in to have a look at how they didn't know how many green rated projects they had. They didn't know what they meant. They didn't know what the financial implications of not meeting those requirements were. So I spent six years working with them from obscurity in, in the corner of the office working on green projects to working directly with the board to put together their adaptation or the start of their adaptation strategy for the organisation as a family contractor I've been around for 200 years to what it would be like in the next 50. Um, I then moved to Sustrans for a, a year to work on large scale and active travel infrastructure projects and at that point I saw an advert for Architecture and Design Scotland to work in adaptation planning and it was the first time I'd ever seen a job with that in its title and I was keen at that point for that to be my focus although most people around me don't have a clue what an adaptation planner is or what they're doing um, and that was far four years ago but now it's very much increasing in, in, in designers um, motivations so um, yeah I've been at ANDS for the last three years um, and I also support two charities one's called Creative Carbon Scotland I've been on the board for eight years I'm about to step down very sadly wow. an amazing organisation who do great stuff and we're about to appoint two new board members and I'm also now the chair for a small charity called uh, Place in Childhood which is all about elevating the voices of children young people in the world of the built environment um, and unsurprisingly most of them are very very concerned about the impacts of climate change It's all very interesting because how adaptation and climate change is coming into design and architecture really it's a slow process it's surprising yeah. how many feel uncomfortable in the current circumstances uh, in their position as designers and their ability to influence clients you know there's a master servant relationship there and as, a, as an architect you have to be able to pay the staff's wages and or put food on your own table so at what point do you do you start being morally um challenging with your clients to the point where you might uh, isolate them and then lose work it's a really difficult position to be in um, I'm fortunate enough to be in an organisation that's supporting people to be able to create that challenge from a local authority and a community level. Would you be able to tell me a little bit more about overall aim and the timeline of the Climate Action Town project so far? So the Climate Action Towns project was uh, conceived nearly a year and a half ago after the success of our Carbon Conscious Places pilot which was the first time we'd been funded as an organisation directly by the Energy and Climate Change Directorate. Most of our money comes from the planning, architecture and... Can I stop you? Yeah, yeah. One thing, um, it seems like we're getting a little bit of wind. Oh no. There, so Do we want to just move inside? When I moved to ANDS, I was specifically employed to work on the Carbon Conscious Places pilot, which was 12 months of funding. So it was a bit of a gamble to take that one year post, but it's ultimately benefited the organisation and myself because I'm still there three years later. So myself and my colleague Heather, we worked on creating those eight design principles that were specifically designed for planners so they could have early design conversations around those eight themes to try and um, reduce the overall impact of a project thinking about this indirect carbon emissions as opposed to achieving solely net zero. Um, so after the success of that, Energy and Climate Change Director asked us if he'd like to put together a proposal for the Climate Action Towns project, which had been included in the government's programme for government um, in 2020. And it was getting close, so it was February last year, it was getting close to the, the end of that, that year. Um, and so we put together a proposal of what we thought Climate Action Towns should be as a project um, and we were successfully awarded the funding um, at the very beginning of the last financial year. Um, so that was for 12 months initially. We're now in August 2022 so um, we were given a second year's worth of funding 
Um, we we're hoping that will turn into three because the project was conceived to be a three-year project. Um, the first year was looking at you know engaging with communities. The second year was about enabling action or defining that, and then an enabling action. And the third year was about start of delivery. Um, because we recognise this is a really big subject and working with seven towns they're all completely different everyone within those towns is you know completely different so as an experiment we didn't think you could achieve what we were hoping for in a, a year uh, so it's three years uh, it will hopefully take us to April 2024 Great um, so uh, it's all about towns yes. um, so how did you select the towns to include and um, which towns made the cuts? One of the main aims was to bring small towns into the climate emergency or adaptation conversation. There's a lot of, of focus on the urban areas, understandably because of the density of the population, but everyone and everywhere is going to have to adapt to the impacts of climate change. Um, so the main driver was, was that. So we used the urban rural classification for um, towns. The population bracket for small towns is 3,000 to just under 10,000. So we used the 2011 census data to sort of create the list of towns, 156 in Scotland of that current size. So we used that, but we were determined to use a data-driven approach to you locate those towns rather than ask do an open call and ask who'd like to work with ANDS, which is what we did with the carbon conscious places. We're very conscious that that if we were to be working with towns, but not only towns that aren't traditionally or haven't been perceived to be traditionally acting on the climate emergency, we needed to use the data to, to identify them. So we were able to reduce that list of 156 to about 20 by looking at who had previously been awarded climate challenge funding. So if you had, that meant there was someone motivating the community to, to act on it, so they were taken off the list. Darn. <laughs> um, we then um, looked at flood risk, uh, current and projected flood risk using the SEPA map, um, both coastal and fluvial, but also then looking at the Climate 2050 projections as well to see, you know, where the anticipated worst affected areas might be, um, because graphically at the moment they're, they're the only kind of piece of information we have to use that show at that level, town level. We also were asked to look at the SIMD, so the Scottish Index of Multiple Deprivation, to see if, if there was an overlap between those areas and, and the, the places that we were identifying as a priority. So it took us down to about 20. And out of that 20, um, we'd say half looked like a possibility. We'd never worked with them before either. Um, and what we did was we met with the key agencies group, which is another group convened by the Scottish Government, which look at national planning applications. So they all look at it together rather than each looking at it separately and then and then coming together. We asked them if they were aware of any projects that were ongoing that weren't in the public realm, and there were. Um, so that reduced it further to about 12. We decided to, instead of doing the six that we were asked to, we'd do seven because two of the towns were next door to each other, which was just pure happenstance. And we decided that we could use that situation to investigate the 20-minute neighbourhood in a rural context and how these two places might connect with the nearest town, which happens to be Inverness. So we've got Stevenston, Annan, Campbelltown, Holytown, Invergordon, Allness and Blackburn. There's a mixture of coastal and um, sort of central well, in the middle of the country, you know, um, not central belt located places. They're all very different communities with very different issues. Yeah, various levels of um, participation and engagement. We've got one community that does not have one single constituted group. And we've got another community that were awarded a surf award for regeneration two years ago. You know, so they're, they're, they're really, really varied. They're all on different parts of the journey and I'm reflecting on that now 18 months into the project at the start 
they weren't none of them were acting on the climate emergency in any conscious manner but now they all are and some are running with it and some are taking slightly longer to get moving um so yeah that's that's how we, we picked them and um the added bonus of the additional funding for year two was that we were asked to add nine more towns into that wow. um, and recruit an additional member of staff which is currently happening this week um but the impetus for those two the selection for those two new towns is child poverty rates because actually climate action towns is dealing or attempting to deal with two out of the three scottish government priorities and so they've asked us to add in child poverty because that's the third one um, and and to be honest i'd say more than half of the the locations that we're working with do have ridiculously high and shocking uh, child poverty rates anyway so yeah, yeah. it's a slight tweak of the of the data that's being used to pick them but i should hear very very soon who the, where those two new towns are and yeah. then reach out to them to see if they want to work with us because that's what we had to do with the existing seven yeah yeah um so yeah it's sort of smack bang in the middle of climate justice idea so bringing people on board who should have their voices heard and might be the most impacted by climate change yeah and um, yes, yeah. i would agree with that uh, you know it's again it's happenstance that none of the you know locations are within the just transition zone um, which is in Aberdeen and Aberdeenshire, which is very much focusing on the transition from oil and gas to something else. We've got Invergordon and Allness who are right on the cusp, but they're also facing exactly the same mm. issues, but because they're not within that boundary, they're not able to access that kind of funding at the moment. And I guess part of our job is to highlight these things, both to this government and to the communities we're working with, that these programmes at national scale are happening and that they could benefit from them if they were aware and how they linked to their own communities. Mm-hmm. Um, so you said that phase one was really mostly about process of engaging the yes. communities. So can you tell me a little bit more about how you went about that? So we, we had a very small amount of money and enough money to employ three full-time staff, three full-time staff working with seven towns. So we have we have, have have very limited resources. Our aspirations were massive, but we had to be realistic about what we could do as an organisation to connect with these communities to see if they wanted to work with us. But first of all, um, it was really important to engage with the local authorities to let them know that we would like to do this. Because I, in the ideal situation is whatever would happen would be in partnership with the local authority as well as the communities and or other stakeholders. But to be led by the community, not the other way around. So we had to let them know we were essentially going to be doing something on their patch, just out of, you know, good manners. Um, and it, it went down well in all seven. Uh, it took longer to get it, the nod in certain locations than others, but that's fine. We knew that would take time and in the middle of a pandemic. Mm. Yeah. Um, so we then had meetings with the local authorities as essentially signposters to say, okay, well, you're, you know what's going on in these communities more than we do. You won't know everything, but at least if you could point us in the right direction of certain individuals who then all further signpost us. The idea is it become like a snowballing mechanism. And it, it has it has worked um, in our small little project um, to the point where we've now got so many different partnerships across all seven towns. That it's, it's quite a job to keep on top of them, but the idea, that means it's starting to work because it was never about us it was about us planting a seed hopefully to enable people to pick up up and run with it and and that's one of the things that we're hoping year two will do is increase the speed and the sort of reach of, of that participation our aim was that to move beyond engagement to people to participate in this so we have um also been deliberate about how we 
hang this project on existing pieces of planning based work to help the people that we're working with see a potential end source for everything that we're doing whether it's conversations or activities so it's contributing to a planning place-based piece of work which will allow the next thing to happen whether that's a project being identified or the putting together of a local place plan or supporting the next wave of the local development plans because communities are having increasing power and say in those pieces of work now following the planning reform and everything that's coming out of NPF4, the National Planning Payment Reform. So we've, we saw that as an opportunity to help support their voice and their confidence to engage with this process, to enable change to happen if they didn't have the resources to do something completely on their own. And that's had a benefit too. And across all seven, there's very different pieces of work. In Campbelltown, it's the formation and working with the Community Development Trust and putting together their Community Action Plan. In Annan, um, they've had some significant impacts from flooding. They lost two bridges and there's an investment in and around the harbour which is currently looking at a levelling up bid and we're looking how to connect that with the wider town plan. Um, in Invergordon and Allness, it's based around the 20-minute neighbourhood. Uh, and in Blackburn, it was around the Blackburn Future Plan which had brought all the community groups that were working together to tackle anti-social behaviour linked with bonfire nights to now look at wider issues in the climate emergency and, and its impact on Blackburn as a, as a, a small town. So yeah, that's been a real, real benefit. Yeah, that. that's amazing. There's so, such different focus and obviously very sort of customised yes. um, um, to every we, place. We made links with the traditional groups, I guess, development trusts, community councils, but also all the schools, um, the informal groups, particularly in locations like Holy Town, who don't have a constituted group. We're reaching out with businesses, um, and so it has. We have had a bit of a lag because of COVID, and now we're having more physical presence in the towns. It's picking up speed, and the reach is is growing because we can be visibly present at, you know. Um, car boot sales or any community based day um, or physical meetings um, and that's having another um, greater impact. Yeah, yeah. So uh, what kind of support do, have you offered in this first phase and will you be able to offer in the future? So it's been uh, I guess a piece of action research. Um, this is a problem that we're all having to deal with but we, we have some of the answers but how to yeah, how to tailor that to each of the specific needs in each place is the real challenge because we've got national policies, we've got regional policies and plans, we might have local based plans, but when you get down to the nitty gritty of each individual town and the streets and the buildings and people's lives and the kind of behaviour change you'd all like to see or not, you know, it's it's quite a complex set of issues, set of systems that we need to talk about for people and help them come to the conclusions themselves and, and, and enable change. Um, so we've had we've had a variety of activities in the last sort of nine months across each of the seven towns, but the first year was all about making those connections. So we've been using the place standards a lot actually. It's, it's a tool that's been put together by the Scottish government um, in partnership with a number of organisations, including our own, and it's a really good gateway into having a chat about what's great and what's not so great about a place. And if you can frame that within the context of climate change and climate adaptation then you can base conversations that are grounded in their experience of the places that they live, work and play in um, to start to put together um, a common understanding and then prioritisation of what they can tackle as a community.
Place principles mm. is a statement, really, but it's a mindset and an ethos. So the idea that, that, that people in places, whether they live there, work there, or visit, you know, um, they're the ones that are experts about that place. They're the ones that know. They're the ones that should be getting to decide what happens. Their, their knowledge and their perspectives and their hopes for their aspirations for their places should be the thing that drives it, rather than um, the allocation of a site and a planning a document like the local place plan that says you're going to have 200 houses there when everyone in, in the community says that's not what we need we need a recycling centre we need a suds ponds we need we need, you know whatever it is a community mm. needs, they get to define it so the place principle is about understanding that valuing that but then getting organisations to work together with communities to deliver their aspirations um, so that the place leads what happens what that might be who knows in each of the seven towns but it, that, 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 that is the defining kind of direction of travel the place standard is the tool that helps frame that conversation the place standards results have then allowed us to move on to the next step of what we've done and we create visual maps to show um, where the climate risks are the ones that we're able to define at the moment where the the things that could be improved or the things that are greater about a place to see where they all overlap to show essentially a heat map of, of problems and, and great things to then hopefully then move into the influencing of those findings into the place-based piece of work um, and that's where we kind of are at with the project now. That sounds really exciting. Is there anywhere we uh, we can see an example of one of these maps or is um, that something that's At the moment, science? not yet. Not um, yet. Not yet. I think what we would want to do is the communities need to take ownership of them and then let them be the ones that share it. Um, we're hoping to put together a network event in the near future for the seven towns to communicate with each other and then actually an external facing event as part of Climate Week. That's what we're going to do. Yeah. Well, the ultimate thing we'd want to do is all the all the, the planning pieces of work in each location will incorporate everything that we do. So, you know, in Blackburn, the Blackburn Future Plan may be updated and it may include the map that they've co-created together. I would hope that that's what they choose to do because ultimately that's, it's, we're trying to create their sense of ownership and their sense of um, empowerment about the actions they've taken or will hopefully take in the next year and hopefully shout about it from, you know, yeah. Yeah, because they were all surprised when we reached out to them to say, we'd like to work with you as part of the climate action town project and they were like why we never get picked for anything and once we'd explained it to them um, they understood and and because of the data driven approach um, it's allowed other organisations to get on board because because it can justify their support too so we were looking at the Scottish Waters Horizons team support potentially in locations that had Scottish water assets um, we worked with the Scottish Flood Forum because they could they could support the towns because of the way that we had um, identified them and, and that will only increase as the, as the year two um, plans are put together. Can you maybe describe a little bit how do you actually use the maps? Is that a physical map or...? Um Depending on who we've been working with, so we've tried to use the same base maps. They're quite large scale, they've got a grid on them. Um, we have been using them... Um, with theoretical scenarios so turning the actual locations into islands and saying okay imagine you know Blackburn is is it has has been flooded and we've used the boundary um, of a 20 minute neighborhood so 20 minute walking radius from the center of Blackburn and that's created the you know the boundary the circumference of, of the island that is now Blackburn and and what would you do in this situation what would you need to do how would Blackburn need to adapt to allow you all to be self-sufficient 
in that scenario. I mean, it's not likely to happen, but it helps with the mindset of understanding, okay, there are limitations to the place that I live now. And these are the things that we have got and these are the things that are missing and how do we Im- include all those things like food, um, a way to clean water. Um, how do we shift our reliance from cars? Although in Blackburn, it's just that's not true because the car ownership rate is quite low. But how how do we change what we do to deal with the scenario? And how do we adapt? Um, and getting them into that mindset then allows us then to say, well, actually, okay, thinking about that exercise, you've now you now know Blackburn in its reality. We know where the area of flooding is going to be. How would we actually adapt in the next five, ten years to deal with the impacts of climate change that we're anticipating? And by taking that sort of extreme scenario and getting them in that mindset seems to be benefiting how they then think about Blackburn slightly differently, particularly when you're thinking about extreme fuel poverty, transport poverty, technology poverty, um, you know, lack of added access to local food. It really has started. I mean but we have to be aware we're not reaching every single person in Blackburn mm, yet. Mm. We'd like to, but we're not there yet. But if we can start to get everyone talking about it in a particular way, they might speak to someone else who might speak to someone else. You talked about the information about you know what's going to happen with the climate locally. Um, can you expand on, on yep. that, how you sourced it and what's available? So that was one of the, the key findings from the last year was the, the kind of lack of local level data that could be used to anticipate a future for each of our streets in our towns you know we've got national global national and if we're lucky regional data the the super flood maps are the most detailed um resource we had to hand at the start of the project i mean you can, you can zoom in at street level and and have the current data and the projected rate data the 2050 maps were also similar, you know, they're quite stark. You can you can change the subtleties of the, the scenario around the temperature change um, and the rate of flooding. Um, but after that, it was the world, where do we where do we go? We can go to the commi- Climate Change Committee's um, risk assessment report, which again demonstrates and outlines national risks, but it doesn't go down to the kind of detail that we need. So um, in the last couple of weeks, we've actually seen um, the introduction of the heat intensity maps, which also now can get into street level. So we'll be looking at that this week. It shows the, the, the you know whether your own street is in a, in a position where it's gonna be under heat stress. So after that though, there was, there was nothing. We had to use um, local insight, which is anecdotal at this point, and hope that that might one day turn into massive citizen science projects um, and or um, a bit of permaculture. Listening to what people have said have been anecdotally happening. This part of the town's been flooding annually. This part has been exposed since they cut the trees down. And then hope that, that, that then they would eventually turn into a lot more science-based mm. type work. But there's a real gap there. And it was one of the key findings we shared with Energy and Climate Change Directorate at the end of year one. They've really paid attention to that, actually. The other reason we would really want that kind of data, because it allows the people to have the power and the resources to make informed decisions that are based on that, to flip the hierarchy, and it shouldn't just be cost as the driver. Because if you actually got all the data, said, if you don't make these decisions now, it's going to cost you more in the future. Um, to be to be able to give them the confidence, you know, 
the, the length of political cycles has a massive impact on mm. on decision making and actually if you can say well this goes beyond the four year political cycle this is this is something that's going to happen in the next 5, 10, 15 years and you all need to collectively agree that this is a priority for the region or you know your town um, I think that's really important to, to allow them officers within local authorities and communities to challenge say well actually we know if you make this decision now it'll ne- have a negative impact on us in the future. So let's take the time and uh, get some help and do the right thing for us, not just now, but in the future. Is there any other key findings we haven't really talked about or challenges or perhaps maybe not, not going through all of them, but like something that sort of stood out to you in particular? Um, the data, the, da- the lack of local level data was the biggest one. The alignment to existing planning-based pieces of work was also great for onboarding and being able to give people a tangible outcome from our support because we don't have any money to deliver projects. We can offer our role as conveners and connectors. So we've been able to take a step back and say, well, this is your problem in in Stevenston or your priority in Stevenston. And actually we know this organisation or this organisation might be able to help with that. So we've been able to give that kind of helping hand and so being able to say, well, if the project only lasts a year, this, can, this, this piece of work that we've, we've created with you could feed into your local place plan. And then your local place plan will inform the local development plan. And then, then hopefully you as a community will have more control over what happens. It's really important to not just leave people with nothing, um, parachuting in and then disappearing without any sort of trace of the work we've done. I think it's been a driver for what we've done. We've also been incredibly honest with everyone about that scenario because transparency in this climate emergency, I think, is is key. The the last one, I think, is about relationships and ways of working, is that these things take time. There's a reason why we asked for it to be a three-year project, um, and I think that aligns with the Climate Hubs as well because I know that the pilots have also got three years. Yeah, so maybe you could talk a little bit about how this project related to the current climate hubs in Aberdeen, North East and uh, what is it, Northern Highlands and Islands which is based in Thurso as well and there's plans for more. SCAN is in, involved in developing or helping the government um, to build networks around the future hubs as well so definitely something um, of interest how, how this potentially can link with the hub work. The data so I've identified our towns and it was again a happy accident that Invergordon and Allness happened to be in the Highland Zone for the pilot hub. The partnership in Invergordon and Allness is really exciting because it's not only ANDS and Highland Adapts, which is the Highlands version of Climate Ready Clyde, which is a, a an adaptation programme looking along the sort of boundaries of a river, um, but also with the hub and then the Highland Council. So we've got a really strong partnership because all four organisations are motivated to um, tackle the climate emergency. So at the point when we were identifying the towns, the hub and um, the adaptation programme hadn't started yet. So in theory, if we had been picking towns, All Ness and Inver Gordon wouldn't have been chosen this year. It's it's It was um, interesting though, because I think when we look back on most of the towns, if we'd waited a year, we probably wouldn't have gone with any of them because I think there's a perception that nothing's happening in towns when actually there's quite a lot mm. um, so we that partnership up there is working really well and we actually don't have to do too much really because there's there's so many positive um, organisations and individuals that are working on that so um, we, we share 
our information with Nescan and Alison in the Aberdeenshire hub. But we haven't had you know, reason to connect, unfortunately, apart from sharing our learnings and, and be there if she ever needs any, any help or any questions. In relation to the kind of future hubs, we too, along with SCAN, are also supporting the Scottish Government um, with that process. So we are hoping the Climate Action Town project and everything that we're producing can be given to not only the regional coordinators that SCAN are working with at the moment, but then also the hubs when they're all up and running. We see this as a stepping stone of learning from carbon conscious places to the hubs being up and running, which we, we have no direct involvement in, but are here to support if they need us um, for place-based work. And we hope that we would be a resource for all of them once they're all connected. Um, so we all continue to work in partnership. It's, it's great to hear because there's so many different threads coming together and it's not always visible that's no. happening, but yeah. it's happening yeah. and it's magical sometimes how it all comes together from so many different places. Obviously the government is trying to make it happen, but I think it's driven from many directions. I think with us as, com- as conveners, I think that's what we do as an organisation. We see each other as, as conveners and we meet regularly with SCAN. We, um, we share, we've been sharing our, our work and our lessons because we saw the value in that connection. Mm. Um, and then we've done it the other direction with, with the government, but also the hubs and any other organisation that's, that's working in each of our regions. And we keep telling everybody about what's going on Fantastic. to try and increase that connectivity. Um, because I think the hubs have a um, potential for a lot of change, positive change. Mm, mm. So this is sort of for seven towns, maybe eight um, in the nearest future. Um, how can this process be accelerated mm. uh, across most, at least small towns in Scotland? You said was yeah. um, quite a few of them. And given that we're sort of running out of time to take action, is there something that communities can do? themselves or any sort of systemic work that would help? That's a really difficult question. I guess with the, the planning reform that the hope is that the um, the power being given to communities to create their local place plans, if they have the resources and the time to do so, would be the mechanism for this to happen. But that's dependent on whether they've got people within their communities who are driven by this and know and and know and, um, able to support the authorship of a local place plan so I know that there's a lot of change afoot with local authorities trying to identify which communities are, are keen to do it and to work out what support they could have so there's a bit of transition happening at the moment my hope would be that that, that would be the case but I, I worry slightly that you'll have motivated communities will be great and then you have communities that don't have the time that are work, focusing on the energy crisis the cost of living crisis being able to put food on the table you know, are they really going to have time to put together and work across the whole place to put together a local place plan? I, I, I don't know. Um, we are working on climate action towns, but at the same time, there are a number of other organisations that are looking at a similar scale. And again, we, we're working in collaboration with them. There's the Creative Carbon Scotland Cop Beacons project, which is, is you know, not, not necessarily towns, but looked at partnerships and locations from Tayside all the way up to the islands to encourage communities to work together on this subject and so if you were to look at map map the Cop Beacons project climate action towns but also um, the Keep Scotland Beautiful climate adaptation community project they've got seven towns and also the improvement services new health and well-being project they've also got seven more towns so there's at least 24 24 places at the moment no no 
28 places, <laughs> maths Karen, 28 places looking at this right now, which is not, you know, a lot when you say there's 156 towns um, across Scotland, but we're hoping that the, the, the outputs that we produce are accessible to everyone and that, you know, one person, whether it be a local authority officer or a community member or someone that's just interested and curious could pick these up and then start asking questions and then ask the question of their community councils, what's happening with my local place plan? see all this information I don't quite understand it but I think it's relevant and what can we do and how can I get involved or even just challenge people to ask the questions um that's that's my aspiration um I'd really like it if there was lots of money and lots of resources to make this happen but I think we'd all really like to see that happening but I I'm I'm not confident that that's going to happen quickly enough yeah. If we mapped them all, we were there was one single map that showed all the projects, and that was then given to the regional climate hubs to show where the work had started. Oh. You know, you could imagine you think actually there's quite a lot going on, and this is what I was saying earlier on about perception and nothing's happening. That's not the case. There's stuff happening everywhere, and who has ownership of that information? It must. It's just impossible to know everything that's going on everywhere. But actually, between all of us. We have a quite a good knowledge and that if that could all feed into the regional hubs as the knowledge bases mm-hmm. and can imagine that then feeding back up to local government and then Scottish government, they'd have a way more, we all would have a way more informed understanding of what's happening and, and who to go to to ask for help. That's you it. know, in the last two years, the people I've experienced and met who are working on some amazing things, it's only because I've been exposed to them now and I'm like, well, I can signpost other people because that's part of my job. I'll do that anyway. It's like, there's these amazing community groups on the Sky um, Isle of Rasse who are putting together community energy proposals. You need to go and talk to this person, you know, but it needs to not be in my head. It needs to be there for anyone to see. And mm, mm. So hopefully maybe that mapping tool that, that comes out of the hubs or the regional coordinators would be really helpful. That sounds that sounds exciting. I'm mm-hmm. excited. Um, we work with Community Climate Action, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, across Scan. So I wondered whether you've got a comment on um, uh, what role do you think communities have in making things happen in Scotland or around the world? Communities have to be the driving force. They, I think once we get to the realisation that unless we all start to question, challenge, ask and champion and the kind of things we'd like to see happening in our, in our places... That react and respond to the climate emergency it's we're unlikely to see it happen you know and if we can we can do things ourselves support each other then we'll be better communities for it we'll be more resilient in creating networks we've seen the resilience of communities that have come out of the pandemic unfortunately i think there'll be more from the cost of living scenario that we find ourselves in um yeah I think we, we, we need to understand the power we have as communities and to stop being so isolated and siloed. And if they come together, yes, it'll be difficult. Yes, there'll be differences. But actually, um, we have the capacity for massive amounts of change. That's from my personal perspective, you know, as well as professional. But, you know, we partnership working is great. But I think that it's an underutilised power that communities have. There's not enough of us on the community council. It's not the only avenue for, for making change, but if you have engaged communities that participate in decision-making, then the places that we live and work in will inevitably be better. With central government and local government, the limitations they have from a resource perspective, it's it's unfair of us all to expect everything to be done by every by that kind of institution in this day and age. Um, you know, there's not enough transparency about how difficult those situations and circumstances are. But we, we have to be able to work in partnership with each other. 
And a key lesson and or takeaway from this particular project that you might want to share um, with our membership um, that can inform community groups. Well, it's all about people. This whole project's about the people, people that live in a place, people that work in a place, people that make change in a place, people that complain about a place, people that, you know, it. it's all about people and we have to remember that. It's, planning is a faceless kind of process, but actually it needs to be driven by people. We need to remember that. You know, every single one that, that lives in that town has an entitlement to express their opinion and get involved. Uh, and challenge things and stop making these things so far removed from the people that it's impacting. I think that's the biggest thing and that's about building relationships and that takes time. Um, Well, thank you for spending time talking to me about um, Climate Action Town Project. (laughs) Thank you for having me. It was really great to hear about this work and how it links to the regional climate hubs now being developed by the Scottish Government. Over the next few episodes, we will hear some more about the existing hub pilots, Nescan, centred in Aberdeen, and Northern Highlands and Islands in Thurso. We'll also talk more about regional network building being done by SCAN. If you're interested in hearing more from the participants in the Climate Action Town project and others involved in similar work, you can join in the event Delivering Place-Based Approaches in Scotland, organised by ANDS. It will take place online on 27th of September and you can find the details and registration on the ANDS website, ads.org.uk. The link is in the show notes next to the Climate Action Towns report. Well, that's all for today. Till next time, take care of each other out there. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a like and maybe even a review. It will really help us reach a wider audience. If something exciting is happening in your own community, be sure to let us know so that we can help you tell your own story. Or maybe you would like to join our brand new storyteller collective. You can drop our story weavers a line at stories at scottishcommunitiescan.org.uk. To keep up to date, check out our website at scottishcommunitiesorguk or find us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram or simply sign up to the newsletter. Thank you.